Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Are you haunted by the guilt of your past? Today, James Collins teaches the importance of letting the past stay buried. But first, we learn how to respond to the scoffers. I want to say thank you to everyone that has responded so far to our Studio 50 initiative. We recently announced the need we have for a new recording studio. Most of the equipment we use to produce Watchmen on the Wall is outdated, and we are in need of new equipment and software. The goal of Studio 50 is $50,000. This includes all the needed equipment, software, and installation. I know with your help, we can meet this goal. To support our Studio 50 initiative, simply call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. And let the operator know that you want to help. You can also designate your gift for the Studio 50 project when you give online. SWRC.com. That's SWRC.com. Thank you. For at least the last 200 years, the Western world has openly scoffed at Christians and their beliefs about the Bible. Atheistic evolutionists or skeptics often ridicule Christians who accept the belief in the supernatural creation of the world and a global flood by calling them fundamentalists, anti intellectuals, extremists, and literalists. Our host, Dr. Larry Spargimino, welcomes Simon Turpin to today's program to help us prepare to face the scoffers. In the last days, there will be scoffers. They are everywhere. It is pervasive and invasive. They are here. Simon Turpin is on the phone with us. He's in the UK, and he is the author of the new book, Scoffers, Responding to Those Who Deliberately Overlook Creation and the Flood. Thank you, Simon, for being with us. Thanks, Larry, for having me today. You are in the UK. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write a book on this really important topic and the work you do for and with Answers in Genesis. I live in the UK. I'm married to my wife, Jessica, and we have seven children. We home educate them, and I've worked now for the past six years for Answers in Genesis. I work for the UK organization, very similar to what the guys do in the US, so we go around churches in the UK speaking on the truth of God's word when it comes to creation, when it comes to the flood. Obviously our cultures are similar in many ways but different in a lot of other ways and the church here in the UK is probably about 4% of the United Kingdom. There are probably 67 million people living in in the United Kingdom and I would say 4% of those 67 million go to church Mm. on a Sunday. So the, the UK has seen a dramatic decline since the days of people like Spurgeon, Whitfield, Wesley, all those guys. So there's been a rapid decline. And and that's been, by and large, to do with things like the theory of evolution, the idea of millions of years have had a real impact on the church in this country. Well, it certainly has here in America. I appreciate the book you have written, Scoffers, Responding to Those Who Deliberately Overlook Creation and the Flood. I think you're right on target. Your readers will appreciate the endorsements. Looking here at Professor Stuart Burgess, a professor of engineering, Professor Andy McIntosh, Emeritus Professor of Thermodynamics, School of Chemical and Process Engineering. So 
I think the point's coming across loud and clear that if you are a Christian, you can be a good scientist as well. Absolutely. Professor Burgess and Professor McIntosh are two of the leading scientists in their fields. Andy McIntosh is now retired, but Stuart Burgess is still very much active in the university scene here in the UK. In fact, he won an award two years ago. He's the leading scientist in his field in all of the United Kingdom, which is a very prestigious award he was handed. Mm. Yes, so those, those men are doing really good work in the area of creation science. That's encouraging to me about the UK. I think we have the same situation here in America. Of course, there's great apostasy, but it's amazing, like with Answers in Genesis in the States, we've got some highly credentialed PhDs who have done all the degrees, written all the books. Danny Faulkner, he spoke at our church a while back. The astronomer, amazing. Yeah, yeah, Danny's a good guy. He's done lots of work. I, in fact, I quote Danny in my book. I reference some of his work. He's done a lot of good work when it comes to the field of astronomy, which yes. is very helpful. Danny is a really good scientist. Well, it kind of looks to me like God is preparing a remnant, because while there is great apostasy, no doubt, in the UK and in America, it seems to me that God is just raising some amazing people, like Dr. Petrovich. He's here in Oklahoma City, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, God is preparing the troops for a great push, and I'm very encouraged to hear somebody like you in the UK. I've met Dr. Petrovich. He's not only a great Christian guy, but a great scholar who's done some really good research when it comes to the patriarchal narratives in Genesis yes. and the history of the Exodus. In fact, again, I reference his work in my book because yes. he's helped show how you can really trust the narrative in Genesis, especially when it claims to be written by Moses. One of his finds was an inscription yes. that spoke of Moses, and it was dated to 1446 B.C. That's the very year the Bible gives for yes. the Exodus from Egypt. So I think that's amazing. It is amazing. I think this push that we see in the U.K. and Europe and in America that, oh, if you're a scientist, you won't believe the Bible, that kind of thing. I think it's a bad excuse. I think people want to go their own way. They want to do their own thing. And the whole idea of being accountable to Almighty God and that there's going to be a reckoning one day, that's very distasteful. And I think if you're really looking, if you want evidence that the Bible is the Word of God, there will be plenty of evidence. But a lot of people say, well, I can't be bothered with that. I look at TV. I've got my golf and all that kind of thing. I think it's really a heart matter, not a brain matter. I think the problem is people's hearts are in the wrong place. Larry, I agree with that totally, because that's the argument of the biblical writers. When you listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, he tells us the evidence is abundantly clear for God. Yes. If you don't believe, you're without excuse. In fact, that's the argument of Peter as well, because Peter tells us the scoffers who mock at creation and the flood are ignorant of the evidence. It's right. not that they're unaware of the evidence, it's that they deliberately overlook that evidence. In fact, when you think about it, there's probably more evidence today the Christian faith, yes. whether it's in any of the sciences or history, archaeology, whatever it may be, there's more evidence today for the Christian faith, and yet there's probably more scoffing today against the Christian faith as well. And it's not because of the lack of evidence, it's because people yes. do not want to look at the evidence because they reject that evidence. 
Well, dear brother, you and I are on the same wavelength, so that means there are multitudes of people who are, to quote Romans 1, without excuse. One day, they will have to face the king of the universe, and it will be a sad day. And so, if anyone is listening to me, and if you fall in that category, if you're mocking the Bible, not because of the evidence, there's plenty of evidence, but if your heart is hardened, if you're walking down the wrong path, if you're following the ways of sin and evil and lasciviousness, I beg you right now, cut it out, stop, turn around and face the Savior and ask him to cleanse your filthy, evil, wicked heart and to give you new life that you would study his word. And that's really God's will. He's not willing that any would perish. Amen. Yes, absolutely. Larry, we need people are listening to this, they're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they need to listen to what the message of the gospel is, yes. starting with creation, because that's where the gospel begins. It begins yes. at the very beginning. It doesn't begin in the New Testament. It begins in the very beginning. God is the creator. Amen. He created the perfect world. Man has fallen from that state of grace in Eden, and now we are in Adam, the Bible tells us. We're sinners in Adam. Adam is the head of the human race, and that's why people will not be without excuse. We are image bearers of God, and Adam is the head of the human race. But you know what? There's good news, because the good news is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam, came into the world to save sinners. And so that's what we're presenting to people. We're presenting the message, not only of creation, but the Creator coming into the world to save lost sinners. Amen. Well, friends, I'm speaking with Simon Turpin. He is the author of the book, Scoffers, responding to those who deliberately overlook creation and the flood. Now, Simon, 2 Peter 3.3 says there will be scoffers in the last days, and I think we see plenty of them, and I think many of our young people are being hit hard by teachers and professors who are scoffers, and I really pray for families. I pray for parents. I'm sure you have many families in the UK where the kids are confused, they're mixed up, they're just caught up in this and that. What's your advice to parents who are very, very concerned about their young people, especially what their young people are getting in school? One of the reasons I mentioned at the beginning is that we home educate is because of what's going on in the school system. Imagine our government school systems are very similar in what they teach. Mm-hmm. And so as Christian parents, we have to make the decision, look, yes. if we are going to raise our children, then we want them to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of the scoffing, the mocking, the anti-Christian bias in the school system, we wanted to be able to say, actually, we want our children to receive a godly education. Yes. And so I would encourage Christian parents to really consider those issues. But if you are in the school system and you have no other choice, then you need to realize what's going on and what you can do. And you need, I think people need to be aware, Larry, a lot of the scoffing, a lot of the mocking against the Christian faith is just that. It's scoffing, it's mocking. In fact, there's a logical term for that. That's called an epithet fallacy because people use language that's basically biased, emotional. There's yeah. no truth content to it. Yeah. It's just mockery. It's not based upon any fact or any bit of evidence. You know, young people... Today, if they're in that school system or out in the culture, they'll be called, if they're Christians, extremists, fundamentalists, yes. literalists. You know, that's mockery. That's, that's a logical fallacy. There's no argument in that. And that's what goes on a lot of the time when atheist skeptics attack the Christian faith. They're using these what we call epitaph fallacies. 
I know you have a really in-depth study of Second Peter, uh, the whole epistle, but of course, Second Peter 3 is what we're really looking at. What about the charge that it was not written by Peter? It's not really shouldn't be in the canon of Scripture. It doesn't belong. It's different than First Peter. I know you've got some really good answers to the gainsayers, but what do you say to those who say, um, well, Second Peter is not really a very good book? There are some Christians who would hold that view that Second Peter wasn't written by the Apostle Peter, but I think that overlooks the internal evidence of Second Peter because even if you read the opening of chapter 3, it tells us this is now the second letter that I am writing right. to you. Well, if it's his second letter, what was his first letter? Right. Well, 1 Peter, right? And who authored 1 Peter but Peter himself? And actually, if you look at the letter, not only that, Peter tells you he's a close associate of the Apostle Paul. He knows Paul. In fact, he takes that for given that his audience knows who Paul is. He doesn't have to introduce Paul to his audience. He just tells them, I'm an associate of the Apostle. He knows Paul. But he also knows the Lord Jesus because he talks about the fact that he was on the Mount of Transfiguration yes. with him. He also talks about the fact that his death is close at hand, which if you go to John's Gospel, Jesus told him the way he would die. And so when you look at the internal evidence, it's clear that Peter was the author of Second Peter. Now, whether he wrote it himself or whether he used a secretary as in his first letter, well, that's fine. He's still the author of the letter. Now, I do know that there are parallel creation stories, uh, parallel with the Bible, but very different. For example, Enuma Elish. There are, of course, some similarities, but aren't there significant differences when compared with the Genesis account? Oh, absolutely, Larry. There's several famous flood accounts from the ancient Near East that sound very much like Genesis. And, of course, scoffers have used these to say, well, of course, that means Genesis is not true, and the author of Genesis probably just copied from these flood accounts. But actually, when you think about it from a biblical point of view, as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised to find other flood accounts in the world because, right. given the Bible's history and the truth of it, if you think about the events of creation, the fall, the flood, well, what happens after the flood? We have the Tower of Babel, and people are dispersed all around the world at the Tower of Babel. And what would they take with them? Well, they would take with them their cultural memory of yes. the creation and of the flood. But because they're fallen people, because they rebelled against God at Babel, they're going to distort that account, which is why you end up with accounts like the Enuma Elish or the Atrahasis epic. And these are just distorted accounts of the floods. In fact, like you said, Larry, there are similarities, of course, but there are also many differences because in those ancient Near Eastern texts, what causes the flood isn't the wickedness of man, but yes. the fact that there's too many people on the earth and yes. all the people are disturbing the sleep of the gods, so the gods send a flood upon the earth. But that's not why <laughs> God sends a flood right. it's in Genesis. The flood sent in Genesis because of the wickedness of man. In fact, in the flood accounts of the ancient Near East, when the gods send the flood, they're actually terrified and they cower like dogs. But actually, when God sends the flood in Genesis, he's the one who is sovereign over all the flood. And if you look at things as well, like the shape of the ark in one of the accounts, yes. the ark is a perfect cube. Now, if you've got a perfect cube as an ark, 
if there's a flood, the first thing that's going to happen if it hits a wave, it's going to be destroyed, it's going to topple yeah. over, and it's not going to survive. But when you look at the biblical dimensions of the ark, those dimensions have been tested by scientists, and it's been shown that the ark is a very seaworthy vessel, so it would have right. no problem surviving a flood. So when we think about these accounts, and I talk about them in my book, we can be without any doubt that the biblical one is the true one, and these other ancient Near Eastern ones are distorted accounts of the truth. At the Ark Encounter, have you been there in Kentucky? A couple of times, yeah. Yes, it's amazing. In fact, one of the rooms, they actually have simulations of what a box kind of an Ark would happen to it, like you mentioned. And then they show the dimensions of the ark that's given in the book of Genesis. It's a perfect fit for storms, for waves. It's amazing, the length and the width and so forth. And for anybody who really wants to learn, did this happen? Well, yes, just look at it. How come all of the other societies and the cultures, yeah, they have some parallels in their accounts, but the ark is different, the boat is different, and only the one in the book of Genesis would actually float. And I think that's persuasive to me. In fact, one of the things that I never realized, you mentioned it on page 47, you say possibly the biggest difference between the accounts is that the ancient Near Eastern text do not mention a covenant. Whereas in Genesis 9, 8, and 17, the term covenant appears seven times. Well, I think that's a major difference. And of course, that brings you to the whole issue of covenants, the faithfulness of God, covenant-making policies, Genesis 15, on and on and on. And that is a tremendously convincing item of truth to me. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the biggest ones. I should have mentioned that, Larry, that the fact that through Genesis, at the end of the flood, you have the fact that God makes a covenant, not just with Noah, but with the animals, never to destroy the world again. But the gods of the ancient Near Eastern world were not interested in making covenants. And so there's no concept of covenant in those accounts. Yes, but yes. all throughout the Genesis account, you have a covenant that God makes, not only, like I said, with Noah, but with the world and the animals, because he made a promise never to destroy the world through water again. That's really important because it has to do with the character of God, that our God is a God who keeps his covenant. He keeps yeah. his promises, not like the gods of the ancient world who would yeah. break promises, who would be arbitrary, who would act on a whim. The God of the Bible is faithful. Well, Simon, we're looking forward to having you back. I'm enjoying chatting with you, and I praise the Lord for the electronics that allows me to communicate from Oklahoma City to England. So praise the Lord. Thank you for that. It's really good to be with you today. Simon Turpin is the author and the title of the book, Scoffers, Responding to Those Who Deliberately Overlook Creation and the Flood. We continue to prepare to face the scoffers with Simon Turpin next time. In our resource center, we have Simon Turpin's book, Scoffers, Responding to Those Who Deliberately Overlook Creation and the Flood. Get this resource and equip yourself to be able to answer the critics of the Bible. Order Scoffers by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. My friends, are you haunted by the guilt of your past? 
James Collins recalls a story from his childhood. It teaches the importance of letting the past stay buried. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. This passage is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul emphasized the death burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Today, I want to talk to you for a moment about the burial of Jesus Christ. Throughout history, this has been a contested point of the gospel. Some say Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Some say that he passed out, was taken down, and recovered somewhere. The Muslims say he was taken to heaven before he died on the cross. Some say that dogs ate his body. But from the earliest of days, the burial of Jesus was an important and well-recorded point. All four Gospels record the burial of Jesus Christ. But why does his burial matter so much? Because only a dead Jesus saves. Only a dead and buried Jesus experienced the full wrath of God against our sin. Only a dead and buried Jesus can resurrect. If he wasn't dead and buried, the resurrection couldn't have happened. And if the resurrection didn't happen, then as the Apostle Paul said, our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. I think the burial of Jesus is also important as a reminder to us as believers of the importance of our new life in Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate this with a story. I grew up on a farm in Oklahoma. One day when I was seven years old, I remember waking up and finding my dad standing on our back porch. Dad looked out at the vultures circling near the back pasture. I walked out onto the porch and handed him a cup of coffee. He took the cup with his right hand and put his left on my shoulder. Something's dead out there, he said. As he sipped from the cup, I looked up at him and asked, Is it Miss Bossy? Miss Bossy was the name that I had given to Dad's gentle, tan-colored Guernsey cow. We had raised her from a little calf. For the past three or four days, she hadn't come up to the feedlot. Dad said, most likely it is. We lived on a small 40-acre farm. I sat on the wheel cover as Dad drove his old International Harvester tractor. It didn't take us very long to reach the back pasture. Miss Bossy had been dead long enough to bloat. Flies buzzed around her carcass. I asked, what happened to her? Dad answered, all living things die. Then he said, we have to bury her. I asked, why? Why don't you let the buzzards have her? He said, because as she decays, the soil and the groundwater will be contaminated. We don't know what killed her. She might have had a disease that could spread to the other animals. Some diseases can even spread to people. I climbed off and watched as Dad started digging. He had a small backhoe attachment on the back and a bucket on the front of the tractor. He made quick work of the hole, and he climbed down. He attached one end of a chain to Miss Bossy's back hooves and the other end to the back of the tractor. He climbed back on, pulled the remains into the hole, climbed off, and unhooked the chain. He got back on the tractor and used the front bucket to push the pile of dirt into the hole. I was tired of standing, so I sat in the grass and watched as he went about the job. 
When he finished, Dad said, son, let's go. I started to crawl back up, but before I could, he reached down and pulled me up, set me in his lap. I steered the tractor as he shifted gears and ran the pedals. When we got back to the house, I asked, Dad, why do things die? He was quiet for a moment. Then he said, dying is a part of living. The trick is to learn to let the dead stay buried and go on with your life. His words, which I really didn't understand at the time, have stuck with me over the years. I've come to realize the wisdom of an old Oklahoma farmer is echoed in the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul clearly stated that the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died to take away our sins. He rose to defeat death. But again, why does the gospel emphasize his burial? Why does his burial matter so much? We read in the gospels that Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin council, took courage and went to Pilate to ask for the body of Christ. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Crucifixion could often take days. Jesus was dead in a few hours, so Pilate called the centurion who oversaw the crucifixion. And after confirming that Jesus was dead, Pilate gave Joseph the body. Now, this wasn't a normal practice. Usually, to complete the humiliation of crucifixion, the body was thrown into a trash heap. So, why did Pilate give the body to Joseph? The Bible doesn't say. All the Bible says is that he did. And again, that's important because it's different from the normal way of things. It's the kind of thing that is only written down if it's true. In the first century, when a Jewish person died, they were embalmed, wrapped in linen, and buried in a tomb. That is what Jesus did with our sins. Paul also wrote in Galatians 2, I am crucified with Christ. Not only have we been crucified with Christ, but you and I as believers have also been buried with Christ. Your past isn't just dead, it's buried. You see, if you are a believer in Jesus, your old life is buried. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, you can be raised to live a new life of victory. Are you preyed upon by buzzards of guilt? Is the devil buzzing around the bloated carcass of your old life? Does the stench of past sins remind you of the person you once were? Is the disease of your past killing your present? You don't have to live defeated. If you are a Christian, your past is dead and buried. Let the dead stay buried and go on with your life. This is James Collins reminding you that the Bible says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We have Simon Turpin's book, Scoffers, responding to those who deliberately overlook creation in the flood. Get this resource and equip yourself to be able to answer the critics of the Bible. Order Scoffers by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Simon Turpin returns tomorrow with more ways to be prepared to answer the scoffers. 
Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily podcast. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com.